0: Today's special Q&A episode of Radical Personal Finance is sponsored by HelloFresh. Visit HelloFresh.com and use the coupon code RPF30 to save $30 off of your order. HelloFresh.com RPF30. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, the show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. My name is Joshua, and I am your host, and today's show is a QA and a show. The way these work is once a week at this point, doing my best to keep to a, a once-a-week schedule. Once a week, I open up the call phone line to patrons of the show, and you get to ask me anything. And then it goes out on the show. I enjoy doing these Q&A shows because it gives me a good amount of feedback and it allows me to answer questions uh, from the audience, which is really fun. Uh, It keeps the the show topics varied and diverse and it gives you a chance to ask your question or make your comment. You can say anything that you want. So I've got five callers waiting on the line right now. We're going to get right to it um, in just a second. Before we do, uh, if you'd like to join a call like this, just sign up to become a patron of the show, RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash patron and access to these Q&A calls is one of your benefits. Radical Personal Finance.com slash patron. First, let's go to Matthew in Tennessee. Matthew, welcome to the show. Let me know what your question is, please.
1: Good morning, Joshua. Thank you for taking my call today. Um, my question is around revolves around the uh, the kind of the missing money concept. Have you had have you helped clients find missing money like using sites like literally missing uh, if you have, what's the process look like? Any helpful pointers? Uh, it always just comes across as Really scammy to me, but I could be wrong. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I haven't used that website specifically the missing money but um, just from the name uh, I'm aware of how it works in essence there are government databases of unclaimed funds so let's say for example that you had a life insurance policy uh, and it was uh, and it died and they couldn't find the insurance company couldn't find a beneficiary etc at some point in time that may go uh, and revert back and it's pu- and it needs to be published as available money or let's say there were a lawsuit settlement or uh, somebody died uh, your, You know, your long-lost aunt and she died an in intestate with no next of kin. Uh, then that money gets published and then I guess these websites access a public database um, in some way and allow you to find it and then file your claim on it. I've not used any of them. I don't know. I haven't heard of them being scams. Uh, I have found money, and I, I forget the process. It was so many years ago that I found something that that I was entitled to, and I know I've had family members as well. And usually if you put your name into some of the websites, it seems like oftentimes you can find $100 or a couple hundred dollars that was missing somewhere. I don't know enough to say about scams or not scams. Uh, I think that it's a legitimate, uh, it's it's certainly legitimate that there is missing money out there. Uh, but in terms of which website would be the best you, to use, I simply don't know. Have you actually tried filing? Are you showing up as as having money missing in some of the, in the database?
1: Uh, no, I've not tried. I've I've actually went on their websites, and that's what's kind of throwing me off. Is it's a, the websites are quite dated. Right. Um, and that's what was kind of pushing me back a little bit was that, I, I don't know, I, I don't know if that's actually rational either to go onto a website and be like, oh, this looks nice and therefore I should trust it. But but sometimes it does help. Um, but no, I, I haven't tried it and I haven't, I, I was mainly asking the question, which you answered uh, in that, is it legitimate? Right.
2: Um,
1: and is it worth actually going through the time of, well, I guess that's uh uh, debatable, depending on value but but I'm saying is it legitimate
0: practically I think it is legitimate, and uh I don't know if you have to go through the website uh, I just did a quick uh duck duck go search here, and it looks like there it goes through the National Association of unclaimed Property administrators has a website that you can use search search state by state that seems to be probably a more officially endorsed um uh, officially endorsed website. So again, that's National Association of Unclaimed Property Administrators. But then uh, it says that they endorse uh, a free search database called Missing Money. Uh, so perhaps uh, that is the best place to start. I don't know whether it'd be possible to go directly through the um, through the government, uh, through the local state government, etc. And I would be very, very cautious about giving information out anytime you're dealing with that. Uh, but I'm not immediately scared of it. Is it worth it for $100 or $200? I don't know. Probably not. Uh, if is, is it worth it for thousands? If you could find thousands? <laughs> probably so. So if any, if any other um, uh, listeners have an idea of how this works or if you've gone through it, come by the show notes for today's episode and, and uh, post that in the comments so we can benefit. Matthew, since I didn't have a good answer there, you want to ask another question?
1: Uh, sure. Um, okay. So in your opinion, uh, what's the distinct difference between the CFP education and the MSFS uh, education, and <clears throat> I know that you had mentioned it on the show before that that your previous employer covered the cost for that MSFS. But actually going through the program, in your opinion, do you think it would have been worth shelling out the the 20k that it costs for the program?
0: So that's two different questions as far as the difference versus what it's what it's worth. So this here are the differences. First, the CFP uh, designation is a professional designation it 's not a degree it 's a professional designation and it 's granted by the CFP Board, which is a private uh, industry organization that simply exists to provide the CFP designation and The steps to getting the CFP involve i believe it 's seven classes at this point, seven uh, specifically focused on various aspects of financial planning classes and a comprehensive exam at the end. Of it, and then if you pass the requirements, there's also an experience requirement and a test uh, testing requirement. If you pass those uh, requirements, and you have uh, and you pay your fees every year, then you get to use the certified financial planning. Credential and designation, and it's certainly at this point I would say it has the highest brand awareness and the highest knowledge uh, in terms of the consumer mind, and I think it's it's a good designation. It's uh, the the education to get there is relatively uh, is relatively broad based. The MSFS stands for Master's of Science in Financial Services. Basically, it's uh, you know more commonly known would be a master's degree in financial planning. And that is an official college degree that's going to be granted by an educational institution. So the process is much like any other master's degree. It's not based upon uh, the specific CFP designation board. It's granted by the university. And the MSFS, my experience, I did my MSFS with the American American College, which is a college of financial planning up in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania, and there, when they did the, when we did the MSFS, it required uh, a number of different courses and in different areas, and then some of them were self study and some of them were uh, study in person. Some capstone courses that were all together in a seminar format. Uh, What I experienced with the MSFS is that it was much deeper in terms of deeper study in some specific areas. So for example, I remember that the coursework involved a deeper dive into retirement planning and into some of the modern science around retirement planning. And so it was much more about reading some of the papers and reading some of the new techniques that financial planners are using to try to solve the retirement problems. It was much more up-to-date, and it was much deeper level rather than general, broad understanding. In order to pass the CFP, you need to have a general, broad understanding of rules and regulations, but the CFP is technique agnostic. So they wouldn't talk about, yes, you should use a buckets of money approach or you should use a safe money, risky money approach or they wouldn't get into that kind of approach. Whereas in the MSFS, that would be an example of the types of things that we studied, how much should – when doing a retirement distribution plan, how much money should you put in uh, annuities versus uh, just simply mutual funds, things like that. Uh, the MSFS. I'm actually lapsed on my CFP right now. Uh, I don't. Uh, I don't actually. Even though I have all the 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 credentials still hanging on my desk wall. I haven't paid them their fees this year, and I lapsed on my CE. Uh, and this is cu- some of the kind of practical things. The CFP requires a certain number of continuing education credits every year. I can't remember if it's twenty or thirty hours. Uh, and I got behind last year, uh, and I haven't caught up my CE yet. And then they also require a fee. So they require three hundred and I think sixty bucks a year to be able to use the CFP designation and to display it. Uh, and so I. I currently i don't call myself a certified financial planner because i lapsed with them and i'm not listed in the in the database anymore on the flip side the msfs is just simply a college degree so i still do use that designation because uh, i have the i have the degree and there are not ongoing uh, continuing education credits required for it uh, would i pay the 20 grand for the masters degree it would depend on the circumstance that i'm in in general in a financial services Productive capacity. Very rarely will a client actually care about your academic certifications. What a client cares about is your knowledge, and there's no reason to pay for academic certifications if you are if you have the knowledge. Uh, in terms of you can do it. Some of the most productive financial services people that I know uh, have no. Uh, you know, financial planning designations of any kind, but they're very, very productive and they can be very, very smart. Now, usually the cost of actually getting into it does make it worth it. And most of the time, the cost is relatively small. So if I were actively still in that business, yeah, I think I would probably consider it, but I would do it slowly over time and I wouldn't fall into the the trap of thinking that it was going to make a big, big difference. The only place that certification makes a big, big difference formally in terms of the pay is for somebody who's Pay is going to be a uh, change based upon the academic degree. A lot of times, somebody if they get an MBA or if they get a master's degree, then there's an automatic increase in pay of a certain amount, and then you can run run the uh, analysis of it. Uh, would I pay for it out of pocket? I don't know. Uh, I pr- I would probably lean towards doing it, uh, uh, but it's so hard to say. It's not really going to make that big of a difference for somebody who's knowledgeable. The biggest thing where I think designations make the difference is they help transform the person's confidence uh, and they help the person to learn more. There's good industry data to show that the people who are the most credentialed are often the most productive. and I think the reason is because it builds confidence. I know for me, it helped me to build confidence to where I felt like I could actually give uh, real tremendous financial planning value to somebody because I had the background academically. Uh, But I wouldn't focus on it first. If I were just getting started in the business, I would focus on production and then I would build up over time. Uh I couldn't answer it beyond that. Any that answered the question enough, Matthew? Or any any follow-up clarification before I go on to the next caller?
1: No, that that absolutely does. I was just uh yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Uh, I just was pretty much asking did the MSFS have any like special sauce, but it kind of sounds like what you're paying for is the Organization of the actual education and actually the follow-through to of the, you know, kind of the different things that you have versus, you know, by getting the SFS that there probably was something inside of that that couldn't be obtained from like an outside source or you know, uh, you can buy a whole lot of books for 20k, um, yeah. but. I, d- I do appreciate uh, your answering that question. Thank you very much.
0: It's the same exact question and problem that you face with any kind of college degree. You can uh, – that favorite scene from Goodwill Hunting where uh, the the guys talking about you could have gotten – you got an education you could have gotten for a couple hundred bucks in late fees at the local library. The knowledge is freely available. So in looking at uh, – the access to the information is freely available. It's not hard to find uh, good information at all. Uh But the key is to go – is to start uh, and and look. Am I looking for the information that's applicable? In that case, going through a class is probably an inefficient way to learn uh, when you're just simply looking for information on the case. Or are you looking for something that is going to have a broader benefit? A master's degree is going to open up opportunities for teaching and that was why I did it uh, was – because I didn't have to come out of pocket for it. And I always thought it would be fun to be a college professor. And I said, well, if I can get a master's degree without coming out of pocket for me, that opens up the opportunity for me to uh, potentially be a college professor if I ever wanted to. So you know, never know. There's no reason not to. All right. Jeff in New York, go ahead and let us know what your question is, please.
3: Hey, Joshua, first of all, just uh, appreciate you taking my call, and uh, thanks for everything that you do. Uh, I found you about a year ago, just kind of mumbling through podcasts, and uh, ever since I've been listening, um, definitely taking a, a closer look at the, uh, the FI community and uh, kind of that side of things, so it's uh, definitely been a, been a great thing to uh, have access to, uh, to all that you're doing, so uh, thanks very much for that. My question is just related to kind of general housing strategy. Um, I'm uh, currently trying to pay off some debts, and um, my dad is actually in the process of building his retirement home. But uh, he's not going to live there for about probably about a year or so, Um, and he offered me the uh, the possibility to live there rent free, probably for about six to. 12 months. Um, this would require a little bit of, um, of a commute on a daily basis, probably about an hour. I'm currently commuting really only about 30 minutes per se. Um, I'm actually carless at the moment. It would also necessitate purchasing a car. So I was thinking probably, you know, three to 5,000 out of pocket, uh, just to pay cash for something, um, to do that. So, um, I'm currently paying about a thousand, uh, 1200 in rent, um, kind of depending on the month. Um, so just kind of wanted to see if, you know the outlay of maybe five grand for a car was worth, in the grand scheme, you know that uh, um, just that savings of you know potentially living six to twelve months for a year rent free and having that that extra to be able to throw at my debt.
0: Are you single? I am. Yes. How much debt do you have?
3: Uh, about uh, thirty-five thousand.
0: And what's your income?
3: Uh, Eighty thousand.
0: If you. Where to do this, do you think you could be out of debt in six to twelve months?
3: i do um I'm currently kind of projecting probably about uh June of eighteen i should be should be all done so if I was there that minimum probably six to twelve months, I think it could be the uh the vehicle to uh make that happen
0: What type of work do you do
3: um, I'm a technology um, like operations type type stuff
0: so you don't i mean you don't use your car for work you could drive a cheap car it's not a big deal you're not in the road you don't have image to maintain etc
3: no definitely not not the uh, not the lawyer doctor stigma
0: great right. um it sounds pretty cool to me. Uh, it's I, I I would probably pursue it uh, if you can do it on six to twelve months. To me, it sounds really ideal in this in this context. It's probably of help to your dad uh, to have the place looked after. Empty houses are not great uh, are not great things. Period, uh, and so it's probably sure. of help to him. So you don't have to feel like a total freeloader. He wants to help you out uh, during this phase, so um, it's a win for him that he gets to provide some help for you. Uh, so I th- I see that as as being good. Uh, an hour commute to go from thirty minutes of a commute to a one hour commute uh, for the short term, uh, you know, a year's time to me sounds pretty. It doesn't sound terrible. Obviously, shorter commutes are always uh, are often better and and more valuable. But for you, you could put the time to good use. Plenty of ways to put the time to good use. And we're talking about a a temporary time period, and it's a very direct path to saving. Uh, ten to twelve thousand dollars if we called it on a year timeline. And if you have the timeline to where that would work out with your income to be able to be debt free at the end of a year, uh, I think that would be well worth pursuing. I would buy a a cheap car, um, you know, a little Toyota Corolla, Honda Accord, um, Toyota Camry, something like that. I'd spend a couple thousand dollars. And the great thing about there about doing that, if you do that, is uh, you know, depending on what you need after after you're done, if you buy an inexpensive car, uh, you. You can sell it again if you want to go car free at the end of a year. You can sell it again and uh, basically get all your money out of it, and you have a fine little commuter car. So I think I would, I would, yeah, I would. Uh, I think that sounds like a really ideal scenario. Is there any reason why you don't think that um, would be a good idea?
3: No, I think uh, I think really the only thing would be you know the the silly fear of missing out. I suppose it's uh, a little bit out in out in the sticks so to say but um, other than that you know I think um, it's probably good to to dig me out of the hole and I think the the other thing you hit on very well is the the resale potential of the car Um, I was definitely thinking something like a Camry or an Accord so to be able to get you know three quarters or what I paid for it out of it I think is makes that outlay a little bit more uh, more reasonable in the situation.
0: Yeah, it, it, you got to compare it to what's the scenario that would be that that what's a different scenario that you have. So right now you're spending a thousand or twelve hundred dollars a month on rent, and you're able to get by without a car. Well, could you spend if you got a roommate, or could you find a place to to rent a room in a house for four hundred dollars a month and get by without a car? If so, then you calculate what that would look like over the course of a year. But to go from uh, what you're paying now to zero rent. And I don't know, would your dad pay the cover the utilities or would you need to pay for those as well?
3: I think he was willing to do that, yes.
0: So when you get rid of utilities, that could also be really compelling because... Uh, hundred dollars a month in electricity things like that you could probably get rid of uh, your any kind of internet needs just use a, a use your cell phone uh, and tether when you need internet at home and you're going to be at work a lot of times so you can get rid of uh, any kind of cable or, or unless it comes in the house you can cut your your utility bills down hugely uh, and so the the savings here with having a hookup like a family connection could wind out in your benefit closer to say thirteen hundred, maybe fourteen hundred dollars a month by the time you add up uh, the coverage for utilities, so as a temporary thing, I think it helps your dad. it helps you uh, as a temporary thing. I think it sounds like a great idea.:
3: Great. I appreciate
0: the insight, Joshua. <laughs> For sure. All right. Halicia, well, we're going to come to you in just a moment. Before I do, though, sponsor of today's show is HelloFresh. HelloFresh, you've heard me talk about it before. Uh, it's one of these boxed-up meals scenarios where they send you, uh, they send you a box with all kinds of different meals uh, in it. Uh, they send you it once a week if you want. You can choose the number of meals, all kinds of different scenarios, and the food comes all uh, in the box, in a refrigerated box. Uh, the food comes with uh, all of the portions measured out and step-by-step instructions where you can follow the recipe card and just pull the box out of the fridge, follow the recipe card, and basically 30 minutes, uh, you've got the food in the oven and and you can get it on the table shortly thereafter. Um, I do a lot of the cooking in my house, and I have a problem that I cook from massive portions. So uh, I do a lot of the cooking and always have these just crazy amounts of food uh, in the house. But it frustrates my wife deeply uh, because for her, she uh, has to come to the refrigerator and see mountains and mountains of stuff and figure out what to do at 5 o'clock in the evening. We try to do a better job with meal planning, but it still seems to be one of the areas where we constantly – our aspiration is higher than our realization. HelloFresh solves some of those problems for us. It, it gives you a little box. You can pop the box out. She loves that. She doesn't have to think. She just grabs the recipe and puts it together and boom, done. Now, John, you said we're talking before I hit record on the call. You said that your wife loves it uh, as well. Is that right?
2: Yeah,
4: that's correct. Yeah, she's tried a few of them. She likes HelloFresh.
0: What does she like about it? Like, what's her favorite thing? Is it like with my wife, where she uh, grabs the um, uh, just the 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 the, simplest simplicity of it, or what specifically does she like about it?
4: I mean, everything's measured out, and and the you know, if you need an onion or a you know, small onion, they give you one small onion or one little uh, vial of uh, olive oil or whatever. So it's kind of all, it's kind of like having a little sous chef there that's already done all the work for you and you just kind of assemble everything. Um, I think the biggest thing she likes though, that the recipes don't tend to repeat. I don't know if they repeat even in a year. So, you know, it kind of gets her to cook things she wouldn't normally cook and have the ability to cook. So uh, without, without, you know, some researching online, it's just kind of, it's just, you know, it's a subscription service. So it's, puts it all right there in front of you
0: and it's ready to go yeah take some of the take some of the planning and puts it back uh, puts it back in yourself certainly not as cheap as uh, what we do you know buy, go to Costco and the, and, the, and the restaurant supply store where we get most of our groceries it's not as cheap but it still comes out to less than 10 bucks a meal and when you've got someone else that can create the recipes for you uh, it's a, a really great in between scenario it's cheaper and, and more fun than dining out uh, good quality food as well so go to HelloFresh.com sign up if you've never tried it try it out a, a simple starter subscription Save 30 bucks with the coupon code RPF30. Again, that's $30 off your initial subscription with the coupon code RPF30. And then uh, let me know how you like it. All right. Halicia, did I say it right? Halicia in Colorado, welcome to the show.
2: Yes, thank you. I'm really excited <laughs> to be here.
0: Let us know what's on your mind and let's see how I can serve you today, please.
2: So uh, my mom's pretty sick and she has some pretty hefty medical expenses coming up. I was wondering, um, just from a financial standpoint, of what I should really look into, or there's some creative ways to finance this that maybe haven't thought about.
0: What kind of sick is she?
2: Cancer sick.
0: Is what's her medical prognosis? Probably gonna die in the
2: next like year.
0: Okay, and is she married? Yes. Okay. Um, financially, what is your mom's financial situation?
2: Not great for either of my parents.
0: Is she, uh, as far as her, how old is she and what insurance coverage does she have?
2: She is 67 and she has Medicare.
0: Okay. Uh, just base Medicare and no supplemental insurance?
2: My understanding is yes.
0: Okay. Do you feel that she's receiving through the Medicare system? Is she receiving the type of treatment that she needs or is there a need for her to get treatment that's not currently covered?
2: I'm not really
0: sure yet. All right. So, um, sorry to hear she's, she's doing so poorly. So there are a couple different ways to to answer it. Let's talk about kind of the most aggressive protective scenario. Um, your mom's husband, does. Uh, do they have assets together that they own together?
2: Not really. Not at the
0: moment, no. Okay. So basically, the, I'm getting the impression they don't have a lot of money or a lot of assets. Is that right? That is correct. Okay. So, uh, and then is he working right now?
2: No, he's like 83.
0: Okay. So he's caring for her. And their sources of income, is it just basically Social Security or do they have any other types of pension uh, arrangements? Established for themselves. I
2: think was a pension as well for my, my dad. Okay.
0: So let's start, start with kind of the most aggressive financial um, planning scenario. Uh, essentially, there are two people that need to be cared for in this context. The number one most important is your mother and her medical care and her medical needs. So that is of primary importance. And you've gotta make sure that she gets the care. But you also have to make sure that um, your father is cared for as well. And because their finances are joined, There's we have a duty of care for both of them, and we have a financial duty of care for both of them as well. So as a simple example, let's say they had a million dollars in a bank account. If they were going to use all million dollars of that bank account on her medical care, that might be the right thing to do, but we have to recognize the fact that that will leave uh, him destitute, financially destitute. Now, in your situation, since your parents don't have uh, uh, significant assets. We're basically talking about income. So she's going to accrue. if She hasn't already. She's probably going to accrue major medical bills that she doesn't have the money to pay. So the first thing is to approach this almost like you would approach bankruptcy planning and to say what sources of income do they have and how do we protect them? Social security income, is protected from the claims of creditors and so can be pension income from the claims of creditors. So it's important that you sit down and if your dad is receiving a pension payment from a, a work pension, then you want to make sure that that's segregated and that's not uh, becoming a claim uh, – that's not going into a joint account. Uh, just want to start to provide some some protection for that from the potential future claims of her creditors. Is, as she accrues medical expenses, as she, as she goes forward with her treatment and she, as she has the medical expenses, all of those medical expenses, um, you want to work to make sure that they all stay in her name and in her name alone. Uh, and what hap- will happen is if she dies, so let's say six months from now she dies and she owes $300,000 of uh, medical e- expenses, then her estate will stand good for her debts but it's likely that she won't have much of an estate. So do your parents own a house together? Not at the moment, Okay. So they're renting. So basically uh, anything that she owns will stand good for what she owes. So if she does have any personal assets or any financial assets, when she dies, uh, if she dies uh, prematurely, uh, if she dies prematurely, then anything that she owns, her bank accounts and any personal property, things like that, would basically go to stand good for her debts. If she doesn't have a lot of money and if she doesn't have a lot of property, then – then the creditors will just simply not be paid because you are not going to inherit her debts. Uh, Your dad is not going to inherit her debts. So those medical expenses just simply won't be paid. So it's important to be defensive in your approach and it's important for you to be defensive in in making sure that you don't sign up to become – uh a, a lot that you don't agree to stand for the medical expenses and it's important that to the best degree possible that your dad not uh, agree to be liable for any medical expenses so that in a worst case scenario if she dies in the next you know six months from now or twelve months from now that those medical expenses unfortunately simply won't be paid and what many people try to do is you want to obviously acknowledge the goodness of the people who are seeking to uh, uh, seeking to uh, you know, providing medical care for her, and who may never get paid. They know that that going in, they know that they may never get paid. So you obviously want to do anything you can to satisfy that moral obligation of the debt, but you don't have to take on to yourself the financial obligation. That's okay. Basi- that's the basic approach financially. Now, the key thing is back to the care. What about the care? Oftentimes, what you'll find, especially with Medicare, is there are some treatments that Medicare is going to uh, is going to cover, and then there may be some things that Medicare isn't going to cover. And so you've got to figure out how, if you're going to do something that the insurance doesn't pay for, how can you do that? How can it be paid for? How could you could you do it? Knowing clearly that your mom, uh, that like likely speaking, the people who are providing medical care for her are not going to be paid except what the insurance pays out. And knowing that you're not going to inherit any of her debts – then you and the family members need to decide about the things that aren't covered by insurance that you can do. Oftentimes, uh, there'd be ways for you to support, and you can say, well, we'll pay for this other treatment over here, or we'll negotiate for you know this, this experimental thing, et cetera, and you may choose to pay for that out of your own resources. Uh, but basically, what I would do is just talk to everybody, make sure that everybody knows the situation, knows the circumstances, knows your mom's uh, lack of financial resources, and uh, and talk to them. Make sure while you're going – and meaning that oftentimes they may go ahead and agree to provide care uh, even though they know that they're not going to get paid in the long run. Uh, finally, make sure that her income is being used to meet her living expenses as best as possible. So prioritize the payment of her rent, the food, the, the things that she needs, uh, not paying the medical expenses. Medical expenses are just going to have to pile up until they can be dealt with. Okay. Any further Thank clarifying? You know. Is that is that a good start? Uh,
2: I think it's a pretty good start. I didn't know that the debt wouldn't be um, transferred. Right, right. So that's really good to know because I think it's going to be pretty crushing.
0: Yeah, it is. It always is. Uh, I mean, it's not uncommon to have a million, a couple million dollars of debt, especially if there have been advanced treatments uh, and things like that. So it is important that you know, yes, Nobody will inherit your mom's debt. You will not inherit her debt. Uh, your dad will not inherit her debt. Nobody will inherit her debt. So if she dies prematurely, she dies six months from now, nobody's going to be responsible for those payments uh now, so so nobody's going to be responsible for that. You're not going to get any of her assets because her estate, the assets of her estate need to be sold and disposed of to pay her creditors if she dies, but um, no one's going to inherit the debt. So let me just make a quick planning tip for those who are in a situation where the parents have more money. If you're in a situation like this, and let's say mom and dad have um, – Uh, They own a house together and the house has $300,000 of equity and maybe mom has uh, an IRA or a 401k uh, account, things like that. This is where you need to sit down and do some good defensive – planning, basically elder, uh, elder care planning or uh, bankruptcy planning, and you want to make sure that you don't drain the assets that are needed for the spouse in order to pay for the medical expenses. So if I have an IRA with a half a million dollars in it and uh, I need medical care and I can't – and my wife is depending on the $500,000 in my IRA for – Uh, For her uh, retirement years, if I'm undergoing a cancer diagnosis and cancer treatment, then it's very important that I not drain the IRA to pay the hospital bills because then what's my wife going to do when I die? It's much more important that I keep the money in the IRA. The IRA has protection from the claims of creditors. It is a bank, it's a it's a judgment proof asset. You cannot be I can't be sued by the hospitals and then have access to the IRA. And the IRA would pass to my wife by beneficiary designation. So we cannot spend the money in our IRA. I can make sure that that money is set aside for her at uh, my death to make sure that she's covered for retirement. And then if I die soon if I die prematurely, then, my estate will just simply not be able to pay the hospital bills, so you 've got to be defensive there and make sure that the parties of all uh, of all people are covered. you want to make sure the medical providers are 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 Paid for uh, as much as money is available, but you've got to make sure that all of the other parties that need to be protected are protected uh, as well. So hopefully that helps. All right, John, um, you did my HelloFresh ad for me. Now I'll answer your question. What's up? <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, no problem. Uh, well, first, I just wanted to say that I appreciate all the advice you gave to Alicia. That's, uh, that's all good stuff to know. And uh, maybe the second caller wants to take some um, uh, some lessons from Halisha's uh, situation and move in with the, uh, possibly move in his dad's house and then you know he might get another year or two of uh, rent free living with his dad after that and I know you've used up like ninety nine percent of your time with your <laughs> in person time with your parents after you leave high school so, uh, you might might um, might want to take advantage of that so um but yeah uh, my question was a, a pretty mundane uh, after Felicia's situation but um uh, I was just kind of curious about. Uh, you you had, during the last q and a you had mentioned uh, a couple of tips on how you kind of digitize some receipts that had the, the heat ink on them and i 've been i 've fallen trapped of that you know saving receipts forever go back in are invisible ink it 's like disappearing ink on them and i it kind of made me wonder about your your system in general and overall about um you know how and and your decision process for which uh receipts and financial paperwork in general that you keep around um just you know, the whole whole finances of life, uh, and somewhat you know, high level how you organize them or how you decide. Maybe like a decision process for how you decide to keep certain things in certain certain ways. You know, I've, I've I have a couple apps that I use for scanning, but you know, they always seem to be in ten different places. <laughs> you know, just keeping it all in one place and uh, OCR'd and recoverable when you want to get a certain bit of information. Um, would be interesting for me to hear.
0: Sure. So let's start simple. And uh, here are the simplest ways to do it. Uh, Most people don't need anything fancy. They don't need anything digital. They just need a simple file folder. And unfortunately, many people, their lives are so disorganized, they don't have a file folder. So the first thing that I recommend is anytime you have something or you buy something, just establish a standalone file folder. Depending on the type of thing that it's going to be. A simple manila folder can work well. Or uh, oftentimes I like to use, and I've acquired a bunch of them for free, I like to use these little uh, basically like Tyvek envelopes that have a cover that you can wrap the little bungee cord around and that allows you to organize things that are related in a very simple way. Uh, But at least a file folder. Uh, So Usually for most people, there are only a few things that need to be tracked. A simple example would be a car. Um, If I buy a car, the first thing I do when I buy a car is I create a file folder for it. And in that file folder, I keep anything related to that car, initial bill of sale, the title, uh, initial – Um, uh, initial paperwork, uh, registration paperwork, copies of anything, copies of repair records, et cetera. And if you just simply have one file folder that's immediately made out for that car, then you always have a place to put things and it's easy to take and to put things into it. Um, Another thing that I do is I always keep a notebook with uh, with something and a a simple notebook that I can write in. It could be just a, a simple pad or any kind of small notebook and keep a log. Uh, a log of uh, the mileage the log of the things that are done so when i you know a, a year ago i bought a camper van and the first thing i did was i put a notebook in the camper van with a pen attached to it and i use that for keeping notes when i take the car to the mechanic then i write down what i did what i fixed etc the mileage the date all of that things uh, all of that and, and so i have all the information uh, laid aside By simply having a place to put it, that lowers the resistance that we have to keeping good records. And there's no need for complex digital solutions Uh, in general. You can just have a piece of paper, a notebook, et cetera. The issue that we mentioned with regard to – the fading receipts is pretty rare with most things that are in use in in, in life. Your mechanic generally is is going to give you a printed paper printout from his accounting software, uh, and then there'll be a, a heat a heat receipt on the back of it that was just simply the credit card slip. So you can look at it and say, well, is this important? And Chances are it's probably uh, probably not important. You can probably uh, continue on uh, and you'll have everything you need. If you do that with – same thing with your house. Uh, You put your title records all in one place and then if you have more, a lot of people will go ahead and create a binder for their home uh, appliances, uh, things like that. I try to save almost nothing that can be easily found online, but I just – but I do try to save paperwork for things that can't be. So to me, the, the user manual is not nearly so important as the actual purchase confirmation so that I have the information. Uh, so low-tech is perfectly fine and works really, really well. If you – Uh, if you need to preserve the receipts, the simplest low-tech way to do that is going to just be to copy them. And I think in this context, a lot of times uh, people have uh, a copier at work. Um, You know, Certainly, you don't want to run your own thousand booklet production job on your boss's time and paper, but uh, ask your boss and uh, one or two receipts copied a month is probably not going to be a big deal. Or you can buy a home copy machine that's very inexpensive. Uh, That would be the most basic level, and most people would be well-served by simply having that done. Now, you can go up from there, Uh, and you mentioned you can use a scanning app and start to scan information. I've done that. Uh, And and does it work? Yeah, I think it can work. You can set up an Evernote notebook uh, or some non-Evernote equivalent. You can set up an Evernote notebook for your – you know, the car, et cetera. And then you can just simply scan each receipt. I fa- have found that using the scanning app on the phone is good for every now and then, but it's not good for consistent, uh consistent things. But if you only have a few pieces of property, et cetera, then I think using a scanning app can be fine. I think you should either choose to do all paper or in essence, all digital, uh, and that lowers the resistance because I found I've found that having half and half didn't really work. At this point, I uh, I use actually a scanner, and I use a pretty fancy scanner. Um, the one that I use is, and it's expensive; it's four hundred something bucks if you buy it new. But I use a, a scanner called a ScanSnap IX five hundred, uh, made by Fujitsu, and it is probably the the. It's not the it's a it's a pretty Cadillac scanner that is appropriate for all kinds of different things. It's a duplex scanner, which means it'll scan front and back of any document simultaneously. It's very fast. I think it's rated for 25 pages a minute, and it can be used to scan a variety of media. Uh, and uh, it can scan receipts. it can scan uh, it can scan receipts, it can scan papers. It can scan stacks of random things. And so what I've done is more and more, I've gone ahead and committed to doing things largely digital. Uh, and so I use it for, Records and I keep uh, a, a, just a simple foldering system. I prefer not to back things up in the cloud uh, for greater security. Uh, I have good backup systems that aren't, uh, so I'm not worried about the cloud on the backup. So I just keep uh, a, a foldering system uh, and a file system in for each of my assets. So if there is a Uh, If there is a – you know, if it's my car or if it's a house or something like that, I make a separate folder for it. And then I scan all of the documents into it and I just simply – I don't worry too much about organization. Uh, In general, you can get so bogged down trying to organize something perfectly that when there's no need for it. For the average car, if you have 20 or 30 files in a folder, you don't need to – do any major organization, you can look through those and figure out uh, when you replace the the transmission fluid if you have to, and it only takes a few minutes. So just simply setting up a simple file, uh, sim- simple foldering system. What I do is I just simply use a dated system. So for any file, I use uh, a date system that will be sortable on date of year, month, day. So uh, as I you know if we. Record this in 2017. It'd be 2017 two zero one seven zero seven one three, and then uh, the name of what it was and a, and a quick description in the title, uh, and the a fancy scanner like the Fujitsu ScanSnap makes it so easy to scan scan these things. Put the file name in, drop it into that. That it makes it super super simple. So I love it, uh, and I that's what I use. Uh, so I organize things around the asset. If it's a home purchase, just organize things there, and then. And if it's financial records, then that should be organized in the accounting software. Uh, either use, uh, you know, I use YNAB for personal stuff. Uh, you can organize things effectively enough in YNAB. I use hashtags, uh, so uh, I have a Toyota Sienna minivan. So hashtag Toyota Sienna. Uh, if anything's related to that, that's easily that makes it easily searchable. And then uh, if it's more complex than that, then you can go ahead and use bookkeeping software. So something like QuickBooks makes it very simple for you to associate uh, a scanned receipt with the actual, uh, with the actual uh, file. Uh, I found that for me, I you know I struggled with it being cheap for a long time of not wanting to get a scanner. Finally, I just said no. I've got to have a good scanner, and I use it for uh, basically everything. Uh, I use my my ScanSnap for uh, I scan all my books. Uh, I scan like for example, when I read a book, I like to read books in paper and mark them up. But then at the end of it, I destroy them. I pull the bindings apart, toss them in the ScanSnap, and probably about ten minutes I can scan the book. That way, I have a permanent digital archive of it. I don't have to have uh, the I don't have to keep the paper version of it. Uh, I have a permanent digital archive that contains all my notes, all of my emphasis, et cetera. It does color, it does black and white. So I find it really useful for that. Uh, I, and then also records, you can just put stacks of records together and do it. So I have found that having a good scanner has been well worth it uh, for me to simplify things. So one of those systems can be created. And I think those are just, that, that's how I do it. And those are my simple ideas for it. Um, how do you do it, John? And what ideas do you have?
4: No, I, I appreciate that. It's, it's, uh, those are all good ideas. I think you've kind of helped me isolate what my problem is. It's a balance between paper and tech and then a balance between asset uh, filing versus a sort of like a time. You, you said you're primarily keep it by asset. And then within that, that, that asset, you have um, you know kind of a dated structure. So I I, I kind of tend to go all or nothing one way or the other. So right now I'm in this in-between stage where I'm trying to digitize everything, scan it in, you know, religiously as I, as I get the item and then I put it into a, just the, you know, every six months I start a new folder and put everything I purchase, all receipts, all records, whatever, into that linearly, you know, they might get mixed up again, but you can sort through them. Um, And then what I've been doing on the digital side is just hoping it has OCR and, you know, you can search for it uh, that way, but, uh, you know, OCR isn't perfect, then even things you're trying to remember that that thing that you're trying to search, maybe it's not really listed that way on a receipt or a paperwork. And I've been getting by pretty decently with that. But overall I, it's just it's kind of disconnected. And and to your point about the um the car stuff, I think that's one of my major pain points is there's a there's a separation between when I do the thing to the car and type a little email to myself to send it to myself and then later I have to take that email and put it into my online spreadsheet uh, where I keep track of all that stuff. And that little disconnect is a big problem because sometimes it doesn't happen or it happens very late or I don't get all the notes in. So just having a little tablet in each vehicle um, and going kind of low tech on that, I think is, is a, I think that's a good, good idea. It keeps it where it needs to be. You generally don't need that information when you're away from your car, and even if you are away from your car, you're usually not that far away from your car if you're doing this other work at home and trying to do planning. So I think that'll help a lot, uh, just with a simple notebook going low tech on that will help.
0: So Yeah, for the uninitiated, OCR stands for Optical Character Recognition, and it's the function that allows you to scan a document or take a picture of it and have the computer translate that image into textual recognition. This is what most – you know, many of us use Evernote in some capacity. This is what Evernote does when you take a picture of a paper and it says on it Radical Personal Finance. It allows you to come back later and search your database for Radical and find uh, those instances of it. My experience, John, having – being the master of creating complex systems and then watching them (laughs) fail, (laughs) I have learned that it's simple – it's important not to kind of overstress. As a simple example, I don't save receipts for anything except business expenses. Um, I don't save them. What am I going to need a receipt for on, on something or possibly a big uh, a big ticket item uh, certainly is a, reason, is a reason to do it. But I don't need to save my receipts from the grocery store. I don't need to save any of those things. All I need there is to know basically how much am I spending on a monthly basis on uh, food. And so as long as I have some record of that, and I do, you know, either checkbook register or a uh, program like you need a budget, radicalpersonalfinance.com slash YNAB, radicalpersonalfinance.com slash YNAB, you need a budget. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> As long as I'm using something like that, then I have the category that I need. And so simple is important. Before you design a system for something, it's most important just to eliminate steps and say, Am I ever going to need this? And in general, I found that as long as I get rid of stuff and I simplify, I don't need to save all these emails. I don't need to save all of these receipts. I don't need to save all these records. um, I'm probably never going to do it, need it. And if I ever did need it to save on $100, well, $100 was the price I paid for having a simpler life. Um, Similar things like, Saving boxes for – I bought a new monitor for my computer. Well, I'm not going to save the box for it just in case I ever need it. If I ever need it, it just – It adds too much complexity. So one or the other, either paper or digital, works really well. Uh, And if you're digital, then you have the tools. So if you have a scanner, then that makes the tool simple enough. And then you had to create the setup, set up the filing system, figure out where is it going to be stored, how is the data going to be encrypted so it's protected, and how is it going to be backed up? You've got to set that up and then follow through uh, across the board. But in general, for most people, it's not that big a deal. If you just had a file folder for your house that you put everything, everything, a seat in for everything in your house, chances are you'd have most of the info needed. And then if you ever need to go back through and look at housing expenses, you just pull up that category in your accounting software and you cross-reference it and you can come close enough to solve, uh, solve the, 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 the record's needs. Uh, I do. I would say this. I I struggled for years with trying to use the phone as a as a scanner. I was an early adopter. I always used um, the jotnot scanning app. Jotnot Pro is what I used. Worked great for, on my phone for years with with my iPhone. But it is nothing like having an actual scanner. And today, uh, if I had the choice, I'd dump, I'd get the cheapest smartphone or get a dumb phone and get a scanner <laughs> um, rather than try yeah. to integrate it into the phone. Scanning with a phone is so frustrating uh, to do because of all the problems with now, how do I get the document onto the hard drive? How do I name it, etc. So I highly recommend pick up a good, quick um, duplex scanner and it's worth it.
4: Good tip. Thank you. I appreciate that.
0: For sure. Um, Someday I should probably do more and and, uh, try to organize the system better. But that's what I do. All right. Finally, Andy, you're up. Uh, Welcome to the show. Let me know your question, please.
3: Hi, Joshua. Um, I just wanted to maybe kind of get a little more detail on some of the things you've said about um, insurance purchasing in the past and then your opinion on the whether there is any value in what that is of having a local agent versus not having a local agent.
0: Okay. Tell me more.
3: Um, So specifically with the agent thing, um, I don't want to be necessarily asking brand recommendations. I'll try not to say brands unless you want me to, but um, I've always had uh, car insurance, home insurance, all that through um, a local agent, you know, a person that I knew that I went in and I sat, uh, sat down and talked with and I've never used any of my insurance, but, I've always been happy with the agents. They seem knowledgeable and helpful, and you know, willing to go over things with me. Um, And I've recently compared just car insurance with um, some of the online ones you can buy, you know, direct online, and I could save a couple hundred dollars just on car insurance, you know, not counting homeowners and all the other things I have insurance on. And one of my big hang-ups on that um, is the idea of leaving a local agent and not having that person I could go talk to and just wondered if, in your opinion, there's value to that or, you know, kind of what your thoughts are on
0: that. Yeah, yeah. All right. So I understand more. So I think the value is – so it's going to depend on the type of insurance. Let's start with uh, property and casualty insurance, car insurance, homeowners insurance, et cetera. Uh, I think there is value in a local agent if you can find one that meets your needs and does a good job. I think there's also value sometimes in working with companies that don't have local agents. And I don't know of a grand way to – understand the difference. My experience was I grew up – my dad was always a USAA member and USAA is an insurance company that only does business with military personnel and they have a a significant degree of brand loyalty um, because in most things, they've done a good job. And then – so I just got – I got my car insurance with USAA because I was on my dad's policy for years and I got my own. I was like, well, I'll just stick with USAA. Uh, and so it wasn't. If in general, if if you know my if my dad had done his business with a local State Farm agent, then I probably would have just gone with the local State Farm agent, just like many people do. Uh, and most of us, that's the that's the biggest influence. I was always comfortable not having somebody local because I just grew up never having someone local. Same thing with local banking. I've never banked with a local bank. Um, I've had account here and there but as far as primary banking, I've never had a bank that I could walk into and work with a banker uh, and uh, so I'm – but I'm an, I'm, a, I'm a point – I'm at a, of a generational approach where I'm comfortable not having that. Uh, I think the first thing that matters is whenever possible uh, – To work with a company that's going to be excellent for the type of insurance that you're looking for. So in property and casualty insurance, um, there are two mutual insurance companies that have often had good ranks. One was USAA. Another uh, that's often been leading is a company called Amica Mutual. Um, They often are well-ranked in terms of their customer service. And when it comes to actually filing a claim, I've seen – Personally, with my experience with the USAA on car insurance claims, uh, how nice it is to work with a company that just seems to want to do the right thing and care for their policy owners. I'm biased whenever possible to work with a mutual insurance company as compared to a stock insurance company because I have had experience formerly working with Northwestern Mutual that there's just the culture was different, that there was more of a sense of camaraderie. So I'd rather bank with a credit union. Than with a profit-seeking bank, I'd rather have my insurance with a mutual insurance company than with a stock insurance company. So to me, that's where I start. The problem is, what do you do if insurance is is not available? When I um, owned a home a few years ago, USAA does not write coverage for uh, houses in Florida because of the well, just the the hurricane situation, and the whole Florida homeowners insurance market is. Uh, a disaster Uh, it's been it's a disaster Uh, the government regulators have 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 screwed the whole thing up by and, and destroyed the destroyed free market competition. So basically we have the state-run option and we have a few startup local insurance companies that basically cancel your policy every year and you shop for insurance every year or two. So in that context, I had no idea where to start and I called company after company that was national. No, sorry, we don't do business in Florida. And the only thing I had to do, the, the only place I had to start was to work with a local agent because there was spe- value in that specialized localized knowledge. So in that case, the specialized localized Local knowledge trumped the value of any particular brand name and I worked with these no-name insurance companies that I'd never heard of that were local that I had no confidence in from a customer service representative but I was required to have insurance and, and that was – they were the only people that could offer it. So it's very subjective. I think you are better served by working with an agent. Here's how the insurance works. A lot of times you can buy insurance directly from the national national company or you can work with somebody locally who can write it with the national company. And your actual premium payment is going to be identical between those two. But if you work with somebody local, you're going to have somebody who can sit down and integrate your coverage and who can review them. And as your financial situation is more complex, That's more and more valuable. You want to make sure that your liability limitations on your car insurance are properly aligned with your homeowner's insurance and you want your umbrella liability policy to go right on top of those so you don't have any gaps. You're not going to get that with a customer service rep just on the phone. So if you can work with somebody locally that's going to be knowledgeable, why not? I'd rather do that. The other comment I've made was was something like life insurance. Same thing applies with life insurance. If you work with a local agent, you're going to pay exactly the same premium as working with somebody that you find on the internet. You know, Banner Life Insurance Company charges the same premium to a 45-year-old male non-tobacco uh, of somebody who buys it through a website at lifeinsurance.com or whatever the website of the day is versus somebody who works with the local insurance agent. Uh, it's just a matter of who gets the commission, the life insurance agent locally or the uh, uh, or the uh, uh, the website. Well, You know, after spending years writing life insurance, if your premium is going to be for your term insurance is going to be six hundred dollars a year, my my commission from Banner Insurance is going to be you know five hundred dollars to sit down with you. I'll come and sit down with you for a couple of hours uh, and work with you in exchange for uh, earning a five hundred dollar commission, and I'll give you good advice on your life insurance program, and we'll help you figure it out. It's going to be a lot less frustrating than a national website. So I think there is value in working with a local agent. There is value in working with somebody who's an expert in your area and a newly trained customer service rep is generally not going to be able to provide the same service as somebody you can sit down in their office with, especially if someone's a member of the community, a long-term member of the community. But it's good to keep those people honest and it's good to price things yourself. So if you go online and you do a pricing and you price things out and you quote your insurance with Geico, go down to your local agent and say, hey, I quoted it with Geico. What can you do? my experience has been i've never was in a situation when i was a local insurance agent i was never in a situation where i was ever scared of an online quote uh because they didn't have anything that i don't have uh they didn't have anything uh, any access to somebody that i didn't have and if even if even if i was going to be a little bit more i knew why it was going to be a little bit more and i could just say hey here's why this company that i'm recommending is a little bit more and that's you know And here's why I would recommend it. I don't try to buy the cheapest insurance I can get. Um, Not that I'm opposed to it for something that doesn't matter. But you know, when you need insurance payment on something like your house or your car, you don't want to get into a fight with the insurance company. You want your claim paid, Uh, and a lot of times that's going to have to do with the quality of the company.
3: All right, that's uh, really helpful. I think I think that basically answers that part of my question and. I think you were hinting at kind of the second part. Um, so I've always worked with basically a company representative of a specific company. So it's the you know such and such insurance company office. Um, am I correct that there are also insurance agents out there that are more like uh, freelancers? Is the right term, but I could go to and they could say, well, independent. You no, know, independent. Yes. You know, here's the rate you can get from this company and that company, and because you're such and such, just. Company would be better for you. Is that is that an option, and is that a better option in your opinion? Or
0: yeah, so I think the reason people have these questions, like you, is because you probably feel a personal loyalty to the person that you're working with, and you don't want to appear like you're being disloyal by talking about quotes and things like that. I always have that personal um, uh, hesitation. I don't want to. I don't want to disappoint my friends. I don't want to cause problems for the people that I'm working with. Uh, But I would encourage you that this person is a professional and they work for you. And so ask the questions. Um, There's no reason why you can't ask a question. And from having come from the sales world and insurance sales, I always knew that if I was going to lose a case or if I were going to lose a customer, I wanted to know why. Why? Because probably I know more about it than my customer did, but I would be so frustrated if somebody you would get a, you get a replacement notice if someone's replacing your policy uh, in, in life insurance and similar things. I'm sure with with uh, property and casualty insurance, I would always be frustrated if I saw look I play so and so with a good company and I look down and I get a replacement notice for the policy that I sold them that was appropriate to them, and now we're going with you know piece of junk company that's five dollars a month cheaper. Uh, I can I can. Sell somebody on why the five dollars a month is more valuable, uh, and it and be right about it. So I think you should always talk with the people that you're working with and tell them what you're doing. Tell them, oh, I'm quoting. You know, if you're working with a local legacy company that that where their agent is a captive agent. Here's the terminology: they called a captive agent, where they can only write business with that specific company. Tell them, hey, I'm quoting my insurance around. Um, you know, I've gotten quotes from so and so. Why should I stay with you? Just ask them the question. and that They're professionals. They can handle it. They're big boys and girls. They can, uh, they can handle it. Uh, and It's always a good idea to collect quotes. Uh, it's always a good idea to talk to an independent agent and inquire with uh, you know, a local company and say, hey, can we quote a few different companies? It's always a good idea. The trick is in order to make it worthwhile, go back to the professionals that you're working with. Tell them your competitive quote. Because often there are a lot of unethical people who will quote something, but they're quoted under different terms. Obvious example, you come in and your legacy company that you're with right now, you have a million dollars of liability coverage, but you go online and they quote you at $100,000 of liability coverage. Well, of course your policy is cheaper. It's cheaper because it has different terms. And there's almost no insurance, especially property and casualty and uh, and many kinds of, of life insurance, disability insurance, et cetera, you can't compare it one to another. About the only thing you can do that is compare it with a straight 20-year term life insurance policy. Then you can quote on price. Everything else is based on features and the agent needs to see the quote. So go and get the quotes. Get it from the legacy company where you have a good relationship with. Get it from the independent company uh, that where they're quoting with a couple of people and then compare them one another. Show each other the quotes and ask them, why should I stick with it? And then be open to their answer. Cheaper is not always Better. You often get what you pay for in most things, including in insurance coverage.
3: Okay. So, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess what you saying earlier when you're talking about the local agent versus the website, my, I guess my thought had been you know, when you go know with a, a company that is largely web based and doesn't have local offices, right? The fact that there is, you know, two or three people sitting in a building 40 hours a week. Um, would be a big reason why, I, you know, online company A could be cheaper than online or you know, brick and mortar company B is that? Does that have any bear? Like, would it be reasonable to expect that that's true or not?
0: I think absolutely. Uh, there are a lot of companies that have made their business working online, and because it's cheaper, they can offer cheaper policies. But this very much depends on the type of insurance and on what's available. I'll give you an example. Um, I bought a motorhome a year or two ago. I've since sold it uh, this year and I needed insurance for it. Well – I paid cash for it and I didn't care about having the value of it covered. I just wanted some strict liability insurance that would allow me to drive it legally. But all I cared about was inexpensive liability insurance. I didn't need big coverages, et cetera. I just needed inexpensive liability insurance so that I could drive the thing on the road legally. I quoted it with USAA um, and my premiums came out to like $60, $70 a month that they quoted for my motorhome. Uh, I – Progressive is well-known for having some of the cheapest insurance coverage for RVs. So I quoted it with Progressive and they gave me just simple liability insurance for – was $12 a month. So I was able to have the, 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 the coverage for $12 a month. Well, I couldn't see any reason or benefit why I wouldn't just go with the cheapest place in that one because I wanted something that was very simple and I wanted something – and I was just going for strict liability coverage. Uh, so – in that case, Progressive was a company that they're known for providing cheap RV insurance. That's a segment of the market that they've gone after. And so you want to work with them for RV insurance. That's very different than something else. And and insurance companies all have a different market segment where they want to be competitive. Uh, another example. I'm just using companies that I know where I can speak to because of, of personal experience. Um, There are – like USAA does homeowner's insurance in some places. But there are certain kinds of houses that USAA doesn't want to have. And sometimes they want high-end houses. Sometimes they want low-end houses. And so each company with something that's peculiar to a property and casualty, each company will choose this is the type of person that we want as an insured and they'll often price their policies out of the market for someone else. So that's where you need an expert. Um, if possible, who can look and say, "Do you fall into one of these situations or are you buying a commodity product uh, and there's no um, there 's no general way to answer it other than research. There are only specific ways of application um One more example to 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 build my point. I mentioned a moment ago that about the closest thing that comes to a commodity product is term life insurance, simple level term life insurance. In many ways, a 10-year level term life insurance company from company A is the same as company B is the same as company C. There are a few differences, but it's as close to a commodity as you can get in the life insurance business. That applies if you're healthy and you don't smoke. But it doesn't apply if you smoke cigars. If you smoke cigars, you immediately go into a question of well, how many cigars do you smoke? And there are some companies where if you smoke over a certain number of cigars, they're going to give you tobacco rates. There are other companies where you can smoke an unlimited number of cigars, but as long as you don't smoke cigarettes, you can get non-tobacco rates. And so it's only going to be an experienced life insurance agent who's going to know that answer, and you can't know it as a consumer by reading a website. The teaser website at lifeinsurance.com is going to say you know, forty-five-year-old healthy um, male uh, can get insurance for fifteen dollars a month, but it's only the agent who's going to know. Well, how many cigars do you smoke? In that case, I need to put you over here with you know Prudential because they're cheaper. Uh, and they're not $15 a month, it's gonna be $17 a month, but it's non tobacco rates. If we applied with the company that you saw the advertisement for, it'd be $30 a month. Um, same thing with any time there's health risks. Every company has something that they've chosen. So if somebody has a history of heart disease or history of cancer or they've had certain medical conditions or they have diabetes or hypertension, that's where the expert pays off. So I don't know how to define that for the layperson in advance and say, always use online or Always use local. I do know that you should try both or all and constantly shop your coverages, but tell the professionals what you're doing and let them work to earn your business.
3: Okay, that's really helpful. So I think the advice I'm hearing is just, you know, if I'm looking to understand whether I'm getting good value and whether there's better value to be had, um, maybe get a few online quotes for especially things like auto insurance that are heavy online. And then try to find a independent insurance agent in my area and just go to them and get a couple quotes from them and then take that back and compare with the legacy uh, agents that I've been working with. Is mm-hmm. that that be a good summary of your
0: advice? Right. Don't discount somebody from a large company. Don't discount them for two reasons. One, they have experience. They know what they're doing. There's a reason the company is large. They probably provide a good product at a good rate they're not going to they they can't make it if they don't provide decent rates now you may not be in their target demographic so you might have an expensive policy from that company but there's probably a reason why they're big and they're well known number 2 is because just because an agent has uh, a certain name of a company on their business card doesn't mean they don't have access to other companies as an example when i was a northwestern mutual agent my business card said northwestern mutual But I was licensed with – and appointed with 30 or 40 different life insurance companies, and I could write business with any of those companies. So it wasn't only Northwestern Mutual. I could write a banner policy. I could write a prudential policy. I could write MetLife and and often did. Uh, And so uh, sometimes you may not know that just because uh, the person's business card uh, that may or may not captive – the word captive agent means different things in – different contexts. Uh, so that would be uh, my answer. All right. Last question. Matthew, you said it that I'm going to come back to you and give you a chance to ask one more question. Uh, before, you said you wanted to talk about books. <laughs> so the question you said you were going to ask me when it, before I hit record was, what three books would I take uh, to, well, is this the desert island scenario? Uh, is, that, um, is that the question uh, that, that you wanted to ask?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. It's kind of a fun question to end on. Um, if you could only have three books to read for the rest of your life, which which three would you choose, and why?
0: Okay, so first, what would you pick? Because <laughs> I gotta, oh, I gotta think wow. for a moment. Do you have your answer figured out?
1: <laughs> uh, oh, that's a great question. Um, wow, um, that's stuff So, I guess, like, I guess to frame it a little bit better would be in our current society, because you know, obviously, some. If I were on a desert island, that I would want books applicable to that scenario to teach me how to live on a desert Island. So let's just say in our current scenario and in our current culture, um, given everything, if I can only have three books, um, let's see here. Uh, um, <laughs> all right. So
0: I'll take it. Cause I've been kind of, okay. I've been pondering it. And if you have any ideas you want to add in, in a moment, so it's an interesting question okay. and it's fun to talk about, uh, I, and of course, in in a way, I would say I don't know, but I'm going to picture this as uh, you know, I fell off of an airplane into the desert island um, scenario, because just just for the for the constraint of it. And here's conceptually what I would answer: you need to have an idea of uh, we need to have something that would be helpful in the context of culture. How do you establish and build culture? You need to have something that would be helpful in terms of practical living. How do we keep ourselves alive? And we need to have something that would be helpful in the context of science. And how do we approach – how do we approach – what's the – Basic outline of scientific knowledge, like you know, what is the what is the bare minimum? Um, the first thing I think would be necessary in the desert island scenario is we need we would need a practical book on living. And so there are some very practical um, books on on certain kinds of technology. Uh, how do you preserve food? How do you build shelter? How do you do uh, how do you do these things? Um, back to basics. There's a a, a book I've you know, had various editions over the years but there's a a well-known book it's like back to basics i used to love reading it when i was a kid and it's the kind of book that you need that gives you the practical instruction and the practical um outline of of where did you come of of what did you of um it gives you the again practical structure and outline of how to preserve food, how to build a shelter, how to get uh, water, you know things like that. That that would be the first basic approach. The second book um, that we would need would be something about um, like basic scientific knowledge, and I have no idea what basic text. Um, would serve there, but we would need something that would try to bring together a record of mathematics, um, and, and basic scientific knowledge in some way. Uh, I've never seen kind of that type of book, but it would be interesting to, to, to stumble across it uh, in some way. And the third one would be culture. Um, what do you build a culture on? Because obviously if we're stuck somewhere, then we're going to build a culture. Uh, and so with that, um, rather obviously, I would insert uh, the 66 books of, uh, of the Protestant Bible. And the reason there is because you have history. Where do we come from? Why are we here? What's the meaning of this whole thing? Um, that's what that answers. And then also the cultural construct— um, the early Puritan settlers uh, to the United States of America uh, used explicitly uh, the Mosaic Law as their outline for their law and their tradition, and that has produced that that fundamental foundation has produced uh, the most the wealth the wealthiest most successful culture in the history of the world. Uh, and so, I'd want to build again on that foundation to understand the outline and understand that the precepts uh, of where do we come from, where are we going, and how do we organize a society uh, because that is the fundamental conflict in, in the world today. Once you have the basic needs of life established, once you have the basic – you have some shelter and you have, <clears throat> excuse me, you have some shelter, and you have some fire, and you have some uh, water to drink, and some food to eat. Then, as human beings, we immediately start building civilization. We immediately start building culture. And so, I'd want to understand what was it that has led to the most um, incredibly successful cultures in the history of the world. Because there have been, you know, thousands of different cultures that have developed, but not all of them have survived, and not all cultures are the same. And so, those would be the three books I would put a basic book on, uh, on an outline of, of kind of how to live. And I thought about adding to this, like a book on architecture. Uh, I have some books, oh, what's the guy's name? I can't remember his name, but I read this, this really interesting architecture guy who, who, who wrote these books, not on the actual engineering or the design, but more on the fundamental design. And he talked about the design principles of architecture as applied to different climates. Uh, I can't remember the name right now. I was, I was trying to come up with it. Uh, but, uh, But those would be kind of the things, is is we need how do we live and how do we stay alive? We need um, what basic knowledge do we need to build on, the mathematical and scientific um, precepts for us to be able to construct engineering projects and have them not fall down? And then how do we build culture and civilization? Where do we come from? Where are we going? And how do we build um, a a strong culture with a a moral uh, fabric that's going to last the test of time? Because obviously- if we uh if we wound up on this desert island we probably failed. So that's my answer.
1: <laughs> <laughs> very good, very good. I I don't have to uh to think about it in that exact you know, kind of that brainstorming session to see what I, I guess I would choose for the three books as well. That's a it's an interesting outlook. Uh uh, one would go as far as saying that maybe you've actually thought about that before the question was raised today.
0: <laughs> I have because I've thought about it a lot for a couple of reasons. Um, number one, uh, because I'm a strong advocate of uh, home education uh, for children, I've thought a lot about what do we need to teach our children in order for them to be successful in the future and in one way this is probably the thing that i have most benefited from in thinking about home education and in considering um, how home education can be applied I've benefited from recognizing the fact that I've got to be responsible to know what my children need to know. And that's caused me to question my own education. If we just ship our kids off to uh, a school that somebody else has designed, then as parents, we never think about what my children we often don't think so much about what my children need to know it's kind of just handed to us well here's the curriculum that uh that uh, you know that you need and so go for it this is this is what you need well it's not so simple when you're going to take care of your own uh, education, your own children's education. So I've really benefited from thinking about uh, from thinking about education, and it's made me think: what are the fundamental principles that my children need to know? Um, I'm convinced that it's absolutely impossible for me to teach my children the specific facts that are going to see them through the coming decades. Uh, uh, basically. Almost all the facts, supposedly, and I'm putting facts in in air quotes, almost all the facts that I was taught in school, I've since debunked or we've since gone on with deeper knowledge. Uh, you know, if the atom was the smallest particle, some of us were taught this is the smallest particle. The cell, what is it now? It's like a cork or something. Um, you know, all of a sudden, no, wait a second, the cell goes smaller. Or there's this number of periodic elements, uh, but all of a sudden it goes it goes deeper. Uh, or that's been pretty stable. says so those aren't good examples, but but most of the facts that I was taught about history, you know, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. Well, maybe he did, but he was by no means, and he had a huge impact, but he was by no means the first. Uh, European uh, visitor to the United States. And he didn't discover America in that context. That was a a very surface, shallow thing that I was taught. So I've come to the, the conclusion that you can't really teach facts. To children effectively enough where it's going to last them. What we need to do is teach principles and teach an approach. And so, there, um, there's by teaching my children orderly thinking or teaching them how to be disciplined people and disciplined researchers or teaching them how to approach problems or how to understand philosophy or how to trade a, tra- trace a thread through, then it, it causes me to think about. Uh, things at a deeper level. So I've thought a lot about it there as I've tried to identify what do my children need to know to be successful in the world of 2050. And then the other thing that I've thought a lot about is um, one of my major concerns. I look at the U.S. American society uh, and in many ways – All I see is a society that's in collapse, Uh, and I don't know the timing on it, nor do I know what the uh, the impact of it looks like. But it's very hard to escape the 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 indicators of of collapse. The U.S. American Empire has turned its attention inward. Uh, We've put up walls around the country to try to keep people out. That's a sign of of an empire in decline, rather than a sign of an empire in expansion. Um, There's uh, some significant. Uh, there are some significant uh, uh, financial constraints that are uh, affecting uh, affecting uh, the, the country and the culture, uh, and those will have significant impacts, and I'm convinced they'll have impacts in my lifetime. Uh, when I look at the – uh, the underlying social fabric and the unrest that exists uh there are there's a very small segment of the u s American culture that's doing well, but I would say a majority of the u s American culture is sick I find it fundamentally sick I read you know the most impactful book I read uh, in January was Charles Murray's book coming apart uh, and it kind of really opened my eyes to the to the measurable sociological collapse happening uh in our society today and so I've thought a lot about okay, what does that look like because i don't I don't personally see a scenario where um, it's. I don't think people are shooting each other in the streets. We're not going back to the 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 Middle Ages, and electricity is not going to go anywhere. But in terms of what is that? And so I've I've kind of really approached it as a research project to say, well, what got us here? Um, was am I committing a golden age fallacy and to think that well, life was better before, but now it's not or are there legitimate, objectively measurable um, things that I can look at and I can identify that are markers of success and markers of progress? Where did we come from? What was the path that got us here? And then what are the philosophies that are uh, warring in today's world? Uh, Because uh, religion and philosophy leads the culture. So what are the religious presuppositions of the culture? What's happening philosophically that's leading people to the actual actions of their daily life? Uh, And so in thinking about that, it's caused me to to do a lot of of thinking about culture, because how do you change it? I'm very concerned about how do we adjust and change culture? Not on a macro scale. I can't do anything about a broad scale. But at the margin, how can I make a little bit of an impact in my children's lives and in my family's lives and in my neighbor's lives and in my community? How can I adjust and get off the crazy train and and, and, and stay on the train that, that leads to prosperity and stability of society? So um, you got me going. I didn't need to go into all that. But, yes, I have thought a little bit about it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: No that's great and uh to be honest, I can't speak for the entire uh r p f audience, but that seems like a great uh, future outline for a particular show and get into specific examples and and um uh, I think that would be really interesting to to kind of hear the the deeper um impact in that in the specific examples uh
0: well, here's the short version um because I can't do it in in terms of the thirty minute uh, the thirty minute version, but here is the uh, here's the short version. If you and your personal life are stable, and you have a stable um, a, a stable life and a stable outline of the world, and you have a stable framework, and you understand the things that are objectively true and the things that are not objectively true, and it all starts with us as individuals, and you can never ask a sick person to try to help. Um, you can't ask a sick person to help uh, a community, but it starts with us as individuals, and then you build that from that stability into a stable family, uh, and uh, you know a husband and a wife that are locked together and who are individually stable and who have a marriage that's stable based upon something that lasts. That's an impossible unit to separate, uh, and as society uh, disintegrates, whenever um, whenever the family unit of a husband and wife gets split apart, it leads to um, a slowly imploding society and that reflects on to children that reflects onto to the broader community but it's it has nothing to do with going out and forcing anyone else to do what they can do you can't do it you just see the reflection of that um you can only start with you as an individual and i think this is where so many people get kind of the approach wrong is they just start with trying to say well how can i go and affect those 152 million people out there can't do it there's no way to do it the only way you can do there is with the uh imposition of 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 statist force and you come and you try to force people but that either winds up in in begrudging obeisance or um revolution (laughs) at the worst case so um the things that we talk about every day have an impact on the culture uh and you and i each of us has ripple effect on the people around us so um I don't know it's too big of a question and there's so many unknowns uh, To I don't feel confident publicly going farther than that but I do know that as each of us individually um Engages in the proper stewardship of our own life, it has a ripple effect. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. If you'd like to join in a future Q and A call, please become a patron of the show radicalpersonalfinance. dot com slash patron. Finance dot com slash patron. You get access to these Friday Q and A shows. In addition to that, remember today's advertiser, HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com com, use the coupon code RPF thirty to save thirty bucks off of your initial subscription. Radical Personal Finance, uh, sorry, hellofresh. com, coupon code RPF thirty. Uh, I'll be back with you as. As soon as I can, I know the shows have been short, uh, but I'm doing the best I can, so we'll just leave it at that today, doing the best I can and I'll be back with you soon. Thanks for listening. This show is part of the Radical Life Media network of podcasts and resources. Find out more at radicallifemedia.com.